out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Welcome back to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend. This month we're looking at regenerative culture and we have a special episode as it features the amazing 90-year-old Joanna Macy who has been inspiring activists with her ideas for over 40 years. One of Extinction Rebellion's core principles says we want to create a culture which is healthy, resilient and adaptable. But what does that mean more practically? say, in the middle of an action. Here's a new reporter to the podcast, Mark Smalley, at Bristol Summer Uprising in July. We're in the middle of a roadblock uh, in central Bristol where the motorway hits the main shopping centre and traffic is backed up for hundreds of, of yards behind us and XR protesters are locked down to a, a pink bath in the middle of the road at what is otherwise a very busy interchange. And uh, supporting those people locked onto the bath are um, people involved with, with Regen in XR Bristol and one of them is, is Sophie and uh, you've got here a, a tin of, of, of flatjacks. Is this the living, breathing definition of, of regen, Sophie? <laughs> yeah, I think flapjacks are a good symbol of regen. There's a real tendency to give all you can at events like these, and it can lead to burnout. And it's something which Extinction Rebellion have been really keen to bring in to the heart of their message, that we can't burn out. This is not going to be over in a week. This is a lifelong pursuit. So keeping these amazing people fed and watered and their energy high is just so important. And if my flapjacks help in that way, I'm really glad. I'm actually a trained massage therapist. And on Monday, I was giving out free Indian head massages in Castle Park because not only do rebels need to look after themselves, but it's just lovely to give that to members of the public and it starts a conversation. Regen, I think, is sort of working on different levels. So you're working with your internal world and checking in with yourself, making sure you're taking good care of yourself, making sure that you're not overstretching yourself and, and actually being um, brave enough and okay enough to say when you've got to the point where you can't do any more. And I think the acceptance of other XR members to that is really key as well. And then how we behave towards each other. So our kind of interpersonal, that's it, the interpersonal relationships we have and how we kind of approach those, the language we use, um, how we kind of treat each other. And then we have the action regen, which is very much what we're head, our heads are full of at the moment. And I think although it is, you know, it's really important for us to be there and to support the rebels and make sure they're okay, make sure they're kind of nurtured and able and in a good place because we want them to stay passionate and we want them to stay well and resilient and that's really important to us all. Like you said before, because we're all crew, so we, we need to do this for each other. Regenerative culture and the Regen Working Group is in part an ongoing conversation about not only what regenerative culture is but how to how to create that on a daily basis within the practice of extinction rebellion the last two speakers at the summer rebellion there 
were Bristol Regenerative Coordinators Den Vecchio and Asha Sai Bahai. Now we're going to take a step back from the hurly-burly of the action and go instead to Cabri Hill Fort in Somerset, where Mark is talking to Guyana Shaw. Guyana has been key in helping XR develop its practices around Regen, so she can speak about its use in many different aspects within the movement. They begin in true Extinction Rebellion Regen style with a check-in. Just watching a butterfly going across the field there and another here. Um, um, I'm feeling kind of soft and open this afternoon and starting to be aware of time. Yeah, just the beauty right now, the beauty of the bird song behind us and um, my appreciation of being here. That's me for now. Well, thanks for that check-in, Guyana. Really enjoying sitting here with you on top of this uh, Iron Age port, hearing the call and response of chiff-chaffs around us, the butterflies, uh, clover and uh, convolvulus nearby. Um, looking forward to speaking to you, curious about what you do, a little nervous. Um, it's my first involvement with the XR podcast team so I blooming hope this is recording <laughs> you've been involved with Regen with regenerative culture with, with, with XR it's a term I'm not very comfortable with I think it relates to things I wasn't brought up to know about or to have any connection with self-care caring for others and actually it upsets me to to even say that it's some sort i don't know if that's some sort of uh, english stiff upper lipness or 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 whatever but what is regen to to you and what is it what role does it play within xr um Thank you for asking and thank you for sharing what it's like for you. And I'm guessing you won't be the only ones that the idea that the notion of self-care or care seems alien, there's things to be done and certainly there's a lot of actions to be done. So uh, Regen is recultivating what it means to uh, maybe take care of ourselves and each other in a way that makes the work that we do possible or more possible. Um, to do it in a different cultural context perhaps from the ones we've grown up in, the one I grew up in and the one you, which was full of blame and shame and uh, right and wrong, good and bad. So in terms of nuts and bolts, what is Regen? And what does it mean in practical terms? So let's take my um, affinity group called Earthquakes and there are friends in that who are most in need of regen, um, least able to, to benefit from it because they're, they're so flat Busy. out. What can I say to them or rather what can I do or model myself? Um, yeah, it's a, an incredibly uh, challenging tightrope. There is all of this needed to get on and act. And actually the burnout that's happening, the conflicts that are happening in the absence of regen in the absence of knowing 
to wake up in the morning and to meditate maybe I don't know if that's your calling it's not particularly mine the absence of ringing somebody regularly the absence of not going to a meeting unless you've had some support to talk about the stuff that's got in the way at the last meeting the absence of having somebody at the end of the phone to catch you when you come home and there's an infrastructure that's needed for that that's a huge it's a huge ask so it's empathy it's connection it's presence it's a willingness to slow down at the beginning of a meeting so role modeling checking in whether people need any help when people are having a dialogue um, and you're uncertain how they are um, willing to step in saying does anybody need any help seems a bit tense I mean that in itself is a big step to role model whether it's with younger people or older people uh, really do go into a meeting having given yourself some time to think about what matters to you and who are you bringing into the room? Are you bringing in somebody charged? Are you bringing in somebody who's frustrated with that person across the circle? Have you done anything about being frustrated with that person across the circle? And if you so, you know, think about what, what you might do to keep re-seeing the human qualities in that person in front of you. It's very easy to other people and, and that builds up stress and that has a knock-on effect in the, the meeting. Um, I have come across the, um, is it like the traffic light um, te technique of um, uh, giving an indication of how available one is to, to do things. Yeah, when I've asked, heard of you that. Know, um, uh, red, no, no way, amber, maybe, green, yeah. yeah. But actually saying red, no, you know, asserting oneself in, in that way, I, I don't find that easy. No, and many people don't find it easy. Uh, so practicing role, I'm, I'm a great believer in role playing and replaying. Uh, so um, if you know that there's something that's charged for you coming up, don't go into a meeting unless you've had a kind of conversation with somebody else maybe beforehand, just to see what your body feels like. I've got to raise this thing or I think I'm going to say no to that thing. Your daughter, your wife, your friend, you give a little bit of time to explore that with another person. Whoa, <laughs> this, this, this is radical stuff, you, you know, know so. to, to plan, to, to think ahead of it, to think into a situation. To think, to not leave your body on alert. I mean, often we might have our thinking, we might have all sorts of good intentions, and then some look comes our way, and our body's in reaction for all sorts of reasons. If I know I've got something controversial to speak to, um, or that I'm looking to, to stand up for something that I find important, I want to get as much feedback before I go and do it live. And work out actually oh that bit no i better not say that oh you know you can get a much clearer insight as to what might be troubling to you and whether you can risk saying yes or no red maybe you have to go for amber for now because actually the red is too big a stretch at that moment we're going to be hearing shortly from joanna macy 90 year old theorist who was carving out the sort of landscape that you're describing over the last 20 30 years but she's been a voice out in the, in the wilderness mm. who is she to you and is it like her time has come now i've got a very visceral experience um, of what joanna macy has stirred in me and i'm it's hugely significant so um, my daughter was three four and all she wanted to do was grow up and have two children. She wanted to have one called Freya and one called Rhiannon. And um, it would absolutely cut into me. Those years ago, she's now 16, but 
um, previous to that. I had no sense that I could guarantee her a life that would get her to the point where she was going to grow up and be able to have children. It's, it was, its poignancy was because it was so simple. I just want to have children. And it would, it would kind of totally constrict. I'd be probably not grief struck, but st struck and, and, and stuck and kind of not able to have some kind of flow. And a friend of mine was running a, a, a Joanna Macy work that reconnects in her, in, in her garden, in a place in her garden. And I had the good fortune to join in a grief mandala, which we started with some open-ended questions, open-ended statements about our more than human world and the things that mattered to us. And then we had an opportunity to come in to just speak to the things that mattered. The focus, I think, was fear, anger, and right now the two others go out of my head. But I remember sitting in that circle in this utter, sad, grief-struck place of like, all my daughter wants to do is to... And in the being witnessed, in the, in the speaking out and being heard, it totally changed my capacity to walk with her. It's still the same and everything I know that I was frightened of then is already living. Everything I'm frightened of is already living. It's just not living here with you and me. So... If I understand, by speaking your fear and sharing it in that circle with others, that shifted something for you, so you were able then to return home and be more present for you, for your totally. daughter. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's the witnessing of others. I mean, there's a man called Martin Prettel. He says grief needs witnesses. It needs people, a non-judgmental human basket in which to thrash. So regen can mean a lot of things, from taking a holiday or break to recuperation, healing and growth. As Guyana's story about her daughter shows, it can also be about dealing with your own darker feelings around what is happening in our world. And that leads us to a woman who has been working on these issues for, I think it's actually over 40 years. Joanna Macy, now a venerable 90-year-old, began working as a professor of religion. But her involvement in the late 1970s with the anti-nuclear movement led her to be fascinated by what she saw as people's reluctance to deal with despair, shame and grief. And that understanding, we now can see with hindsight, set the course for her life's work. I was curious about how uh, people could be liberated from uh, what at that time was called by a um, very interesting psycho psychiatrist, psychic numbing. Yes. And I thought we must break through psychic numbing in order for us to uh, protect uh, life. Yes. We must be able to see things that, we, that make us uh, upset. That's what I wanted to write about how I could get them, people, in groups. I had to do it in groups mm -hmm. to articulate their deepest concerns. And I did it. I, I wrote a, um, an article then that got published. And um, I was excited about just registering this, putting this forward. It was called How to Deal with Despair. That was published in a journal, which uh, drew the greatest re reader response they'd ever had. People were 
responding mainly with great thanks uh, by saying thank you for showing me I'm not crazy, that I have been feeling great grief and apprehension yeah. uh, for the plan. This was the era of the uh, Cold War and the arms race based on a readiness to incinerate uh, multiple cities at once on the other side of the planet. Everyone is in grief, first of all. Hmm. And that uh, the other side of grief, like the other side of the coin of our pain for the world, that pain is grief. It can sometimes be outrage. It can sometimes be dread. But we just to look as, as this is our feelings of anguish for our uh, world and, and the natural world and, and the world itself. You know, the people caught working, you know, um, building submarines for nuclear whatever. It's a, like a major death dance that we're involved in. Hmm. And then to invite people to uh, just uh, speak what's, h- how that feels. I understand, Joanna, that that is your approach. And the numbing that you were talking about is an alternative approach to which is not facing the grief. Your work deals with this grief for the planet. And I understand you feel it's important to get in touch with it. Now, not for it as in its own sake, but because of where it leads us. Would you mind telling me about that? Yes, because the grief itself says something very wonderful about us. It means that your grief, whether you feel it as dread or as outrage or as sorrow uh, or even overwhelm, uh, that that says something very interesting and quite remarkable about you. It means that you are capable of suffering with our world. And that in itself as the literal meaning of compassion. We let our pain for the world instruct us about the size of who we are. Uh-huh. It takes us, we learn to recognize, and it can happen in a split second, that uh, we are uh, as big as the world. For you, are there any aspects that you think Extinction Rebellion uh, need to bear in mind in particular as we go forward? Yeah, or... uh, yeah. I would think that that's a good question. Thank you. I think that the uh, challenge is because we're all, we're all uh, influenced and misshapen, deformed mm-hmm. by the hyper-individualism that is, we've been subjected to as a species. So a, a challenge would be to Uh, Those whom you are seeking to uh, influence, to force, and particularly uh, in government and uh, the corporate economy that kind of runs the government, that to hold in mind that they're not the enemy. The need to acknowledge our grief is a message she's honed in over 13 books, of which perhaps the best known is the work that reconnects. 
In it, she describes three stories that can be told about the world in which we find ourselves today. Yes, they're uh, like versions of reality and um, stories we tell ourselves about this moment uh, on Earth or in Earth. Uh, one is the story that we most voices, we hear from most voices, government, media, military, corporative uh, industry, and that is uh, the industrial growth society, or we could call it global corporate capitalism. Uh, and that is this, that story is that we must grow our economy. Mm-hmm. And that and and in that story, uh, the commodities that the natural world presents us with those natural resources are ways that we can grow our economy, control personal wealth, etc., for mm-hmm. our comfort and profit. Yes, that's that... one story. That's one story. And then the another story is that uh, this is. Um, what we call the great unraveling, uh, which is that the living systems that make up uh, our uh, the life on this planet um, are uh, uh, disintegrating, uh, coming apart, unraveling under the impact of this exploitative, extractive political economy and uh, we are uh, experiencing uh, pollutions, extinctions, the dying of the oceans, the extinction, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, uh, and I like the term unraveling because it's what living systems do. They don't keel over dead all at once, mm-hmm. but they begin to lose their coherence mm-hmm. and lose their health and lose their capacity to uh, survive. And then the third story is the what we've been calling since the 1990s. It was a name we gave to the sense of earth-based solidarity and a motivation that we were experiencing in this work and and that's the great turning. It was a name for, for the transition to a life-sustaining society. And that is what I think we all hope is going to happen. Uh, What do you think needs to happen in order for the great turning to uh, be reachable? Good question. Well, for one thing, uh, it does seem now to me that... Uh, the uh, great turning, which is um, what we are doing and need to do for the arising of a life-sustaining society, is uh, probably will not be able to uh, stop a uh, collapse of the political economy. And um, so that the great turning... Uh, is the um, <clears throat> we work for it? Uh, your the extinction rebellion is serving the great turning uh, in a multiple ways, 
including what it's awakening inside the uh, heart minds of the people who are participating. We're trying. And We're really trying, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you're doing it. No, it just it's you would like, you, you know, you're trying to bring everything to a standstill. That would be so good. Yes. But even short of that, it is having results that you can't really be aware of this beyond the reach of your kin, what it's, what it's touching, what it's reminding people. And people are being influenced by it, moved by it in ways that they probably themselves don't even know. It could be being affected in the people who seem to be at this moment, your staunchest opponents. So this is a remarkable uh, upwelling of deep sanity and solidarity with life on this planet. And um, so that it's a, I'm a, I can only think that it must be very meaningful for uh, the people who are taking part and not to get caught in thinking that you've got to um, have resounding success day after tomorrow. Yes. To know that this is for for people who have been so benumbed and um, enfeebled by the uh, industrial growth society or corporate cow or the consumer society yeah. really enfeebles us and separates us. The Extinction Rebellion draws people together and, and helps them experience their own, uh, what I call, earth-based solidarity. And this is a beautiful thing. No, not one of you would be the same, it seems to me. And no. the people who behold this aren't the same. There we have the three stories. Business as usual, the great unraveling, and the great turning. I love her idea of the great turning. It encourages us to see the ecological crisis not so much as a disaster, but as an opportunity for change and renewal. At the very heart of Joanna Macy's ideas is a need to tolerate and accept others who we might begin to think of as opponents, and also, of course, to accept ourselves, even though we too are part of the problem, since it's almost impossible to extricate ourselves from this complex consumerist society. Anything that, that we can uh, do and learn, you know, there, there are traditions that certain that have kept away of loving the enemy, you know, whether you're looking at the uh, Gandhians or the Quakers uh, are helpful. Yes. And uh, also a, a lot of tolerance for yourselves. I mean, we are have been in the chains of uh, this separate, isolated ego that, that is, uh, we're, we're able to see this and, and we have to cut ourselves a lot of slack yes. on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's very it's very interesting. Uh, you're saying this. This might. Um, I hope you don't mind me including this because I don't know if I will be able to use this in the podcast. But I, I know that when I get home, say, and I'm really tired, instead of thinking I need to sleep, I think I need to have an ice cream. I need to watch a TV show as a sort of treat because I've worked so hard. Both of the both of these things I have to pay for. It's like the uh, you know neo capitalism has got into my brain, 
And I could, you know, what I need to do is to lie down and sleep and my bed is there, but I, I want to do something else. So it's like it's hardwired. Yes. So, you know, what's great in this is to just let, uh, let yourself be humorously um, yes. a patient. And you could even, as part of, you know, the nonviolent trainings to uh, do little role plays about the ways that we are servants to the corporate economy and our habits. So that helps us see we're all human and we're all caught in the roles we're, we're playing. And the, in the Extinction Rebellion, we're so lucky that we uh, have the chance and the good luck to be acting on behalf of life itself. I, I feel that so much. Um, and actually, Joanna, this episode where you're going to be headlining and we feel very, very lucky to have you here. But the, the rest of the episode is going to be on Extinction Rebellion's focus on regenerative culture, which I think in your work you maybe call sustainable activism. Um, mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is important? Well, I think that we have to find our way back to each other and fall in love with that uh, uh, each other. And the despair work that when it began for me in the late 70s, I found that there, when people could share their deepest grief or their, even their feelings of their deepest shame, whatever, that this breaks through the walls, which are actually flimsy walls because they do not come with the natural world that fences in to our own self-image. And then what you do, you break in breaking out and working together, this sense of um, uh, mutual belonging, uh, the sense of liberating no matter how good a culture of regeneration that there is within an organisation, there are going to be times when it breaks down, when life intervenes. Earlier this year, I learnt my father was in awful circumstances, stuck for legal reasons in Central America with three forms of cancer. This horrible news affected everything in my life, got in the way of my writing and my Extinction Rebellion work. I realised it not only made me more fragile and tired, it also made me more reactive and difficult to be around. So I needed a bit of time out, not only to visit my father, but also to get back in touch with an inner sense of equilibrium. I'm a Buddhist, so for me that involved meditation, and that helped me get back on track. And talking of Buddhist culture... In this final part of the episode, we're going to listen to Joanna Macy read a myth about the times in which we find ourselves. It's quite long, but so beautiful that we decided to include the full version here. It's the myth of the Shambhala warriors from Tibetan tradition and points to the role Extinction Rebellion might have for the future. This is as told to me by Dugu Chugyal Rinpoche, of the Tibetan community in exile called Tashi Jong in northeast India, northwest, excuse me, northwest India. And, and as those that hear it who have background in 
Buddha Dharma will recognize that the Shambhala warrior is a metaphor for the Bodhisattva and that hero figure in the Buddhist tradition who is motivated by the desire for the welfare of all beings. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time, great powers have arisen and they are engaged in programs to abolish each other. And although they waste their wealth in preparations to abolish each other, they have much in common. Weapons of unfathomable devastation and death and technologies that lay waste the world. And it is in this moment when the future of all beings hangs by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it is not a place. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. And actually you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him because there's no uniforms, no insignia, there are no barricades on which they can climb to threaten the enemy or behind which they can rest and regroup because always and ever they just move across the terrain of the barbarian powers. And now great courage is required of the Shambhala warriors, moral courage and physical courage because they are going to go into the heart of the barbarian powers and dismantle their weapons. Weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go where the instruments of death are fabricated and deployed, and they're going to go into the corridors of power where the decisions are made to dismantle these weapons. And what helps them here is that they know that's the key thing they must know, that these weapons are manomaya, mind-made. They are made by the human mind, so they can be unmade by the human mind. Because the devastations being wrought on our peoples and our planet are not wrought, brought by some evil deity or some extraterrestrial power, but they arise from our lives, our minds, our habits, our relationships, our confusions. These weapons are made by the human mind and can be unmade by the human mind. So now is the time when the Shambhala warriors go into training. How do they train, I asked. They train in the use of two weapons, he said. That's the term he used. What are they, I asked. And he held up his hands the way the lamas hold the ritual objects in the great lama dances of his people. And he said, one is compassion and the other is insight into the radical interdependence of all, all things. Now you need the compassion because that provides the fuel to move you out where you need to go to do what you need to do and what it boils down to is not being afraid of the suffering of your world. Because when you are not afraid of that pain, nothing can stop you. But that weapon, compassion, is very hot. It can burn you out unless you also have the other 
which is when wisdom or insight into the mutual belonging of all things. And with that, you know that we are so interwoven that this is not a battle between good guys and bad guys, but that we're all in this together and that we're so interwoven in the great web of life of this planet that even the smallest act of clear intention ripples through the fabric of life far beyond our capacity to see or trace its effects. So we need them both, he said. And as he said that, I remembered how I loved to watch the monks in the puja hall chanting, and often as not, their hands are moving in moving hand gestures. And often as not, they're dancing the interplay between compassion and wisdom. Now, in telling that, Jessica, Mm, nowadays, I also tell, and I'd like to hear what happened right after that. Okay. It so happened that my family was with me at the time that they were down in the quarters we were using at the edge of the community. It was late in the afternoon. It was dark already. It was near winter solstice. I took my leave of the Rinpoche with deep thanks, ran down the hill, burst through the door. You'll never believe what I just heard from Chucha Rinpoche, I said. And I proceeded to tell it again or tell it for the first time, which was a good thing that helped me remember it. Mm -hmm. My son, Jack, my second son, was there and he listened carefully. And he said at the very end, but mom, didn't your gal tell you how it's going to end up? And I laughed and I said, honey, if he had tried to tell me how this is going to turn out, this situation we're in, I would have believed none of it. (laughs) So don't you believe anyone who tells you how this is going to turn out, because it is our not knowing is the doorway to our fullest courage and our keenest attention, our really present. So fall in love with the uncertainty, because that is the perfect place for the warrior to stand. Many people see this as a very dark and troubling time. So why Mm -hmm. do you think it's exquisite? (laughs) Oh, because I wouldn't want to miss it. (laughs) I I would hate to. uh, I I would hate to think that this, because this is kind of where the issues are so clear, where our total dependence on the web of life is so clear, Uh, where uh, the absolute requirement for us to honor uh, the life of uh, that has grown up on this planet is absolutely clear. Hmm. Uh, this is a moment of choice. And I, of course, there are many times in a person's individual life or through history where there's been moments of choice that are important, but I can't imagine one 
that is greater than what we have as we speak. Mm. And that, as I've said before, I think that on uh, throughout the universe on those exoplanets or what the Buddhists uh, call the other Buddha fields of enlightened beings, <laughs> with that people are lining up to just take a turn on earth, to be here where your life counts like this, where you can see the people that are you're working with, with eyes, uh, with tears of gratitude for each other, that people are choosing. They're choosing life over this planet that has grown up over these billions of years, over their uh, a wallet, over their uh, stock on the uh, on the stock exchange, over their that we can come together at this, whether we make it or not, it is still an exquisite moment for choosing uh, what is most real for us. I think you're so right. Um, and I must admit, uh, I've lost it a little bit now because it's become much more integrated into my life. But I do remember when I first joined Extinction Rebellion, it felt like I was lucky uh, because it felt like change was possible uh, at last, having been blocked for for such a long time. And for probably the first time in my life, I was being a, I was able to work where my values were aligned with where my work was. Yes, and and you're not alone. And there's the feeling that. Um, I mentioned before that in the work that we can actually find is this uh, sometimes a sense of, of uh, mutuality of uh, being liberated into each other's arms or there's a kind of, yes, belonging that is so precious after these centuries of being constantly comparing, isolated from comparing with each other, competing with each other which has been the ethos of our political economy. So that's an inspiring place to end our episode. Thank you to all those who were interviewed on the streets of Bristol and to Guyana Shaw, Joanna Macy and to our reporter Mark Smalley. We've been trying to take it easy over the summer, but you might have heard that we're having a rebellion that begins on October the 7th, when Extinction Rebellion will be taking to the streets again. So save the date and keep yourself strong for your new job as a Shambhala warrior. Sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. <laughs>